0: Clinker Factor, the cement industry podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Clinker Factor, a podcast from WCA which looks at the cement industry's response to climate change around the world. I'm Ian Riley, uh, CEO of WCA, and your host on the Clinker Factor podcast. Uh, Today I'm talking again to um, Matthias Mersman, CTO of KHD, and this is the third of our series on the application of technology. Uh, to reduce emissions and the impact that we have on the environment. And today, we're going to talk about alternative fuels. So uh, Matthias, uh, to start with, uh, how how should we categorize alternative fuels, and how should we break down
1: this whole subject? Mm. Yeah, Ian, you're putting the most important question at the beginning. Uh, That's a good start. That is the million dollar question, I would say, because we have to understand basically one thing when we talk about waste-derived fuels. Uh, No matter what category we pick, all of those materials uh, have one thing in common, and which is none of these materials has been manufactured or put in circulation into our lives uh, with the intention to being burned. So we are using all of these material uh, far away from what they have ever intended to be manufactured for. So that's, that's making it very hard to categorize. The usual term of differentiation, however, is that we uh, mostly categorize into industrial waste, uh, commercial waste, and municipal waste, uh, and then Uh, depending on the the way it is prepared, processed, and utilized, uh, there is a number of different names to be put to it, most of them consisting of three-letter acronyms. So it's a very variable uh, name tagging on these materials.
0: So before we go any further, let's just uh, uh, touch on, on biomass. So obviously that's separate from a, a waste-derived fuel, but it also has the same problems in the sense that it wasn't a designed fuel. So when, when, we, when, we, when we're talking about uh, alternative fuels, do you, do you include biomass or, or do you think of that separately?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, biomass uh, is a differentiation in, in its term that refers to its, its uh, say, chemical, uh, biological source. Uh, but it can also be a commercial waste uh, from a commercial biological farm or whatever. So in that sense, it also is a commercial wa- uh, waste. It uh, uh, can also be part of municipal waste. Municipal waste uh, contains also some biomass. Uh, and even if you have, for example, industrial plantages, uh, for instance, in other parts of the world, it can also come from industrial Uh, activities so it would also be industrial waste it refers to a different category
0: right and i suppose we do sometimes have although this is not the usual situation but we do sometimes have um, material uh, generally wood or or bamboo that is specifically grown to be burned Uh, so i i I guess that's a slightly different category from the others where we're looking at a, a byproduct
1: that, that is true, Ian. Uh, I didn't have that on my radar when I started explaining. I absolutely agree. Uh, these are then not waste-derived fuels, but these are really uh, biogenetic fuels. Right,
0: okay. Well, let's, let's, um, let's deal with the waste-derived fuels, and maybe we'll return to, to, to other fuels later. Maybe the, the um, most interesting part, of course, from a cement producer's standpoint, is the fuels that have uh, a higher... Uh, heat value. Uh, So uh, a lot of the industrial wastes uh, that uh, were dealt with by the industry early on uh, were things like paint sludges and uh, oil spills and things like this that had uh, pretty attractive uh, heat values. Um, So so in in those kind of wastes, is is the key challenge the handling of them as opposed to the burning?
1: Again, this opens a wide field of, of possible answers. The attractiveness, of course, is depending on the best possible achievable benefit to low cost ratio. And usually uh, what has the highest calorific value and the uh, most easy uh, properties for handling is very soon uh, identified by the supplier as a valuable. So the price will go up immediately and uh, which reduces the attractiveness for the salmon plant uh, at once. So it's a, it's a combination of how much effort you spend on pre-processing and how much you spend on co-processing. So the, the uh, conjunction of those two uh, in an individual case must be optimized.
0: Um, so in in um, in Germany you have uh, probably one of the highest uh, usage rates, one of the highest uh, thermal substitution ratios uh, of, of anywhere. Do you want to take us through a little bit how that developed in in, in Germany and and which fu- fuels were used first and 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 how that's progressed over the years?
1: Yeah, that's that's actually interesting because it tells a story and and uh, it serves as a as a pattern also for uh, other regions which are coming up because. it uh, it is based on a a natural sequence of activities and choices uh, uh, and decisions being made. So uh, in Germany, actually really the the, uh, average TSR, thermal substitution rate, uh, is ranging short below 70% already. So Germany has a long tradition in it. And uh, by wrapping up this chronology, we can really learn something about what are the drivers and, and what is uh, meaningful to do in what phase of the game. So back in the 1950s in Germany, uh, the cement plants started burning tires, car tires. Uh, and that uh, that's, uh, has been a very m- smart move because car tires contain a lot of heat. They are easily handleable. They, uh, they are uh, particles uh, which, which you can store on a pile. Uh, they don't get sticky if the rain comes on it. Uh, so they contain a lot of uh, good advantages. And, and th- in the beginning, of course, they also got good uh, gate fees for it, for disposing them off. Um, later on, the, the, uh, the interest of the cement industry was increasing because they found they could save a lot of fuel costs with it. So they started looking for uh, additional ways to substitute their fossil fuels. And then, of course, the first thing you do is you actually look after material that is waste and that contains a lot of heat and somebody has to dispose of. And naturally, uh, you come to um, solvents, uh, color uh, residues and these kind of things, which you can also handle quite easily by injecting it into uh, into the burner pipe. Now you reach some, some certain uh, TSR rate with it and you find out for chemical reasons, for example, containing too much chloride or other components, which you don't wanna have in the cement process, you need to, you need to find different material, uh, still different material, but not, now your appetite has been uh, cured for a little bit. Uh, you are maybe at 30% substitution rate and you still want to increase because you are in tight competition, uh, under immense uh, cost pressure. So you're looking for new alternative fuels. And uh, then the the race is really on since the 1990s, I would say, in Germany, where people started using municipal waste and learned their first lessons on uh, how much they have to be pre-processed in order to be co-processed correctly. Uh, and then the uh, plant equipment was taken into, uh, the, in, into the considerations for adaptation and improvement like special types of calciners. So the effort was then shifting to the co-processing adaptation rather than the pre-processing adaptation.
0: So before we go on, uh, could could you just explain in Germany what um, the municipal waste contained? For example, in in China, where I was working for many years, we had a lot of organics in there and the municipalities were looking uh, for us to treat the whole waste stream, not just the parts that we wanted.
1: Well, in Germany, I would say the municipal waste was still containing a lot of uh, high quality components high quality in terms of uh, what you want to have uh, if you want to use it as a fuel which means a lot of plastics um, um, not much glass or inert material because there was a system in place that uh, separated uh, different fractions of waste from the households and it was quite easy to pre-process the municipal waste into a high calorific high quality Uh, RDF fraction uh, without much glass or stones in it. Now, the interesting thing about RDF is it is different not only in every state, it's also different every day of the week and it's different uh, in every region of the world. Uh, If you take, for example, India, um, there are a lot of pickers. Uh, on the dump fields. Uh, they pick out, uh, say, uh, rubber parts and other parts they could uh, sell uh, on the regional markets, on the local markets. So the, uh, the mixture of materials is a completely different one, which is, for my understanding, one of the major reasons why, for example, today in India, the substitution rate has not yet uh, reached levels which you would expect given the maturity and the technical excellence uh, that the Indian cement industry has.
0: Yes, I I think it's noticeable both in India and in China that if you look at fuel efficiency and and other uh, technical parameters, uh, both countries are extremely good. Um, But on, on TSR,
1: it's still low single figures. Yeah, that's true. That's striking. And uh, I'm sure this has to do with the, say the environment uh, of um, waste derived fuel uh, utilization. And that's, that's another critical aspect in, in this game. Um, there might be a cement plant ready to uh, receive uh, and also pre-process uh, material and then co-process it. However, if there's no collection system in place if there is no, uh, say political environment, social political environment uh, that is supporting the collection of waste, but dumping it just everywhere so that collection cannot be done efficiently, then this uh, material is simply not available. So um, we recognize that if we follow through the uh, development of uh, secondary fuel usage in the world, you see that this is uh, behaving like a wave um, that is uh, propagating forward as the uh, economies develop into a critical state on 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 a threshold kind of development where dumping material is organized from state. And the next step then is that dumping is getting expensive. So that is something that kicked in, for example, in, in if you looked at that in Germany, the development, or in Great Britain as well. So that is really then driving the utilization of waste-derived fuels.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So coming back to the the German story and and the MSW, what was the organic, you know, the kitchen waste? Was that being composted, or was that in the MSW?
1: That also depended very much those days on the region in Germany. Um, Germans are being uh, famous for spending much uh, motivation on separating waste. So we had uh, organics being separated on private motivation by many households. Uh, So Germany was quite advanced in uh, separating uh, waste uh, with a view on utilizing this. Of course, this was also not perfect, and um, due to, say, lack of a very stringent organization all the way down through the value chain in all regions of Germany, there were some regions where households had separated all this waste and then found their waste to be mixed together on the dump site again. So nothing is really ideal, nothing is really perfect, uh, but that is something we have to get accustomed to and we have to accept when we talk about waste and uh, waste-derived fuels.
0: Yes, I think we still have the same thing happening in the UK at the moment. But anyway, this is only in some parts of the country. Other parts of the country, as you were saying, in Germany, also are much better at separating these wastes.
1: Uh, What it tells us is that um, thinking about waste and waste utilization is something that you need to think all along the value chain. I'm already talking about the value chain because this is uh, actually today valuable. And uh, the, that's the magic thing about it. It's, it starts as waste, and it turns into a valuable. And if you want to ride this horse, uh, you'll have to organize it all the way down to the value chain. It doesn't make any sense for a cement plant to try and use uh, RDF if the uh, socioeconomic system in its environment doesn't supply it.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, so let's let's just continue with the, uh, the development in Germany. So you you, you got up to MSW. What happened after that?
1: Yeah, then the the real active uh, from from the technological point of view, the real active era, I guess started in the in the late 1990s uh, when uh, cement plants uh, first cement started reaching TSR rates beyond 50 percent. Then uh, actually this stream which we know under RDF or SRF terminology, Uh, became uh, very very much uh, famous and everybody wanted to have it Um, so that has an impact on its pricing as well but uh, it represented a form of uh, waste derived fuel that was rather easily handle close to being standardized because it could be used in calcina and also to some extent in the kiln burner so the Two firing uh, locations in the cement process could well be served with it. Uh, however, this asked for tremendous uh, improvement in the pre-processing and also in the co-processing technology. So, in order to uh, to fabricate to manufacture a good RDF, specialized companies uh, intensified their technological setup and also their business models in order to produce better. RDF came up and developed. And at the same time, uh, as the RDF got more and more expensive, people uh, developed some interest in saving money by trying to use the coarser, lower qualities. But if you do not spend that much effort in the pre-processing, at some point you'll have to spend it in the co-processing. So this means at the same time, uh, the co-processing technology, Kelsina technology, burner technology, was ramping up. Uh, this, that was the time when the combustion chambers have been introduced, uh, which uh, introduced an open flame combustion concept in the Kelsina that was previously not wanted, because open flame means high NOx. And uh, we, we had just finished the LONOX Calcina era, avoiding high temperatures, avoiding open flame. Now we wanted to spark ignition with the uh, big size lumpy particles of the, of the RDF, of the low quality RDF. So we needed an open flame to initiate uh, the combustion. So that is when the combustion chambers came in. As the decades uh, went by, the urge for ever low cost RDF uh, kicked in and that produced a series of uh, inventions connected to the co-combustion, uh, co-processing, the combustion technology in a cement plant. Up to the level what what we're having today, uh, we're having almost any of the uh, big OEM suppliers, they do have some specialized reactor in the product portfolio, uh, which allows really m- to maximize the feeding of uh, big particle secondary fuels, like, like we in KHD also have this rotor, which is a rotary kiln concept, which is a very rigid and, and robust type of device that allows to put in big size and big mass flow of secondary fuel. So
0: so with today's technology, um, you're you're not getting high NOx out of the calciner,
1: right? That's been been controlled. Here is something that helps us in the cement industry. Um, Even though the design of the calciner is not really low NOx anymore, due to the fact that most of the uh, secondary fuels contain uh, at least one portion in the mix uh, that is showing a high degree of volatile matter, like like the plastics uh, fraction, for example. And this fraction uh, sets free during its uh, pyrolysis, which is the first step of the combustion. Uh, They set free uh, a huge amount of carbohydrates. And these carbohydrates are the most effective NOx reducing agent uh, that is available. So if you do it right and you put the secondary fuels at the right position in the calciner, giving them the right regime in terms of temperature and oxygen for them to set free their carbohydrates, then uh, this uh, NOx reduction step is much more efficient even than the most efficient low NOx calciner was in the early days. So it's no problem if you do it right to achieve very low uh, NOx values when using secondary fuel yeah i know this this is exactly what uh, what i've seen in the operations
0: that that i've been involved with um so if if we look at uh, the the challenges that uh, companies face so perhaps learning from not only Germany, but other places in Europe that have increased up to this high level of TSR, and uh, thinking about companies that are operating in in, uh, developing countries where uh, the regulation system is not yet mature, and so they're still relatively early on that ramp-up. If we look at the the technical uh, challenges that uh, companies will face in, in trying to increase from their current low levels up to the same sort of levels we're now seeing in Europe, what are the things that you would put at the top of the Lists as, as being uh, key issues to focus on?
1: Yeah, the, the most important thing is, if you want to ramp up your, uh, your RDF, is to be open to learn from those people who have done it. I, I very much intentionally stress that before I come to the technical point, because the, uh, the thrill to save money by replacing fossil fuels with waste-derived fuels is so strong uh, that um, the experience says that most of the projects have been run by wish rather than by reality. And uh, I think there is no single cement plant that can say that their TSR raising projects all went by push bottom. It's not easy um, switching to high degrees of TSR you'll have to devote yourself to it. Uh, You'll have to be prepared to to very diligently discuss what your options are and to very diligently design your co-processing and pre-processing in a way that satisfies the requirements of the process in the end, because you can can buy uh, MSW or RDF or SRF, you can handle it. The moment you put it into your kiln plant, your kiln plant tells you whether you did it right or wrong. And if you did not do it right, you will have coating, you will have clogging, you will have massive problems in operational stability. You might have a production decrease. And uh, there are plants uh, which did not like their first steps uh, in, in uh, TSR at all because lots of shutdown and cleaning. So it's, it's a complicated matter. Because these uh, secondary fuel particles, as I said, they have not been manufactured to act as fuel. (laughs) Sometimes they are nasty. So so the the first thing to do
0: then is to look at the pre-processing, if you like, the preparation of the the fuel and make sure that uh, you've done enough. I guess you've got to worry about uh, moisture content. You've got to worry about the consistency of the fuel. Um, and um, uh, specific contaminants in the fuel that, uh, that might cause you problems, is that right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. In the end, if you look at it from the technical point of view, um, these uh, these uh, particles which you put in there, they, they do have a chemical and a physical property. First of all, of course, the chemical properties need to accommodate the requirements of the process. Talking about chlorides, for example, and other components which are harmful for the cement process. Even if you can burn them ideally just by putting them in, Uh, they might destroy your quality. So you'll have to look after the recipe. You might also have to adapt your raw material mixture in order to get to the right clinker quality in the end. So that is the chemical part. The physical part uh, is much more complicated. Um, That is talking about uh, moisture content. That is talking about particle size. That is talking about even shape these particles like their pneumatic behavior. Uh, if you have too many high-density, three-dimensional particles, they drop down into the kiln inlet chamber while you want to have them in the calcina. So that is completely shifting the location of energy release into an area of the kiln plant where you don't want to have it. So there's a lot of things to be looked at. And you were put in the question whether you would first want to look after your pre-processing. Uh, I would say... Preprocessing and coprocessing, they have an interface. So they shake hands at, at a certain position. And that certain position is that the preprocessing is delivering that material in an appropriate pre-processing state that is appropriate for the coprocessing technology that is used afterwards. For example, if we think about this pyro rotor which I just described, that is the, uh, the device, the technical device that can take the biggest particles, then you don't need that much pre-processing. But if you want to use uh, MSW, for example, RDF or SRF in the kiln burner, then you have only a limited retention time uh, for that particle to burn out. So you need a very high pre-processing depth uh, to use that. So it's an individual case that's, that's making it complicated.
0: So are you seeing overall a trend to burning in the the calciner as opposed to the burner?
1: Yeah, also that is interesting. Uh, If if you see the, uh, if if you arrange the steps for increasing TSR along the uh, cement production line, clinker production line, then the first step is very easy to put, for example, tires in the back end of the kiln. Um, That gets you to some 8%, maximum 10% substitution. Next step would be, as you may have no specialized calciner, next step would be that you substitute maybe 20-30% of your main burner fuel by secondary fuel. That gets you to something like 40%. If you want to increase more, you cannot do that in the kiln burner. Uh, because this is the place where the clinker quality is determined. So you better take your hands off that for the moment and then look at the calciner, Because the calciner is where 60% of the total heat input is done and the combustion environment allows a lazy combustion, which you cannot afford in the sintering zone. So the next step would then be in the calciner. So you need maybe special introduction uh, injection technology for the calcina. You might want to uh, change your meal injection ports. You might have to install a bypass because then you would be reaching chlorine inputs, which would be harmful. So then you ramp up everything in the calcina until finally you can go to up to, we have plants running with uh, 98% calcina substitution rate. So that gets you to, say, 80% of total substitution and what's remaining is the last bit of high quality fuel you need for the sintering zone in order to control quality and if you want to go to beyond that uh, and there are plants that are running something like 90 95 percent then it's really the high art of uh, process management
0: and does the uh, the latest process technology the industry 4.0 type of
1: uh, developments does
0: that help you with that process control
1: well, definitely, definitely. Uh, and uh, that is the clear path forward. Um, um, the the increasing TSR and specifically with biogenetic fuel is one of the major pathways uh, on any CO2 reduction agenda. Uh, and it's, by the way, the only of the, all those levers uh, that are at the same time helping reducing costs instead of putting up new cost. So that is clear to be seen, and any percentage of substitution is welcome. And uh, uh, in the plants in Germany and in Austria, for example, we have arrived at a level of which you cannot proceed anymore if you do not uh, pull all the registers you have. And that also includes modern type of uh, Online optimizer systems, model predictive control, uh, digital twin, uh, neural nets, everything you have.
0: Mm. So I, I think uh, we, to, to summarize, we've got really two constraints, if you like, on, on, the, on the amount of TSR that a cement plant can use. On the one hand, we have uh, the technical constraints, so the sort of things that you've just talked about. And on the other hand, we have uh, uh, supply constraints. And um, in, in countries that have more developed regulatory environments for waste disposal, then uh, usually there's more availability of waste. And as we talked about earlier, in many developing countries, there's a limited amount of, of waste that's available because of the collection system and the way that that is regulated. So I think one of the things that we, we see in, um, in India, for example, is that Indian companies are looking at uh, to biomass or the biogenetic uh, fuels Uh, in in order to make up that gap between what they are technically capable of and what they can actually source. Uh, So maybe we could just uh, close by by talking a little bit about uh, these uh, biogenetic fuels. Um, Obviously, we see uh, uh, wood chips used, not only in the cement industry, but in in the power industry uh, as well. And um, increasingly, I think uh, bamboo is is being looked at because uh, the growth rates per per acre are, are much higher than they are for wood. Uh, what, what what would be the other uh, significant fuels that would fall into that category? Are there any others? Yeah,
1: um, I mean, uh, of course, um, uh, in India, for example, there's uh, quite a tradition already also in using something like rice husks. Uh, but uh, I'd like to make one remark uh, with respect to wood and bamboo. The reason why we like placing a piece of wood in our fireplace, in our living room is that we don't have to put new uh, piece of wood into that fireplace after, uh, before two hours, because it takes two hours for such chunk to be burned. Now, I did not find yet any place in the cement production process where I have two hours time to burn down a piece of wood. And that is a big misconception. Uh, still too many people believe that wood would be an ideal fuel for a cement plant. It is only in terms of sawdust. All chunky wood uh, is a real headache uh, and it takes so long to burn out that you will automatically create a problem in your your system if you burn wood and also bamboo uh, if you don't manage to reduce the particle size to acceptable levels and if you compare, for example, the ignitability and the burnout behavior of uh, say a plastic piece, maybe one, two millimeter thick and edge length 20 by 20 millimeter, this thing that burns out within, I don't know, three seconds, a piece of wood that burns out in three seconds must be something like uh, edge lengths, uh, two millimeter, three millimeter. So that is, the, that is the magnitude of difference in individual burnout behavior of the different fractions in mixtures also of uh, municipal solid waste. And that's very important to understand. So uh, the biogenetic fuels, they are important because they contribute to the CO2 reduction, um, but using them in Uh, mostly they're also very humid contains a lot of moisture so um, that is really uh, challenging to handle these kind of fuels
0: yes exactly as you say i think the 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 pressure to reduce uh, co2 emissions is perhaps uh, pushing companies to go faster than the regulatory environment in their countries and, and hence the uh you know, looking at bamboo and, and, and wood, but uh, these uh, fuels have their own issues of alternative fuels. Do you, do you have any other uh, suggestions that you'd like to
1: put forward as sort of step one? Uh, carefully look at the pneumatic stability of your riser duct and your calcina, and then put uh, edge length smaller than 30 millimeter into the calcina, gradually grow and and keep track of your, your mastering of the process. Of course, If you have a long-term perspective uh, and you decided to go that way, maybe you uh, want to uh, use biogenetic fuel strategically for your CO2 roadmap, Uh, then you should go for a reactor that is providing a long retention time. So I guess it's very hard to give general recommendations that are valid for for everybody. Uh, You need a good master of process uh, uh and certainly good advice
0: yeah no, I, I think that's absolutely uh where people should should start when they're they're trying to uh expand beyond what they've done before learning from the people who've been there before is probably a, a very good starting point so, well, it's uh, been a pleasure talking to you again today and um, i thank you for taking the time uh, so uh, we we have uh, one more chat schedule here, uh, which where we're going to talk about the plant of the future. So I, I look forward to doing that in a few weeks' time.
1: Thank you very much. Like always, it's a pleasure, and I'm looking forward for the next one.